Hey, good evening. Welcome to another week of BSF. We're glad you're here. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 16 tonight. Let me pray for us and we will get started. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for the opportunity to be in your word. Uh, Lord, thank you that we have Jesus's example to look at as we try to understand what does it mean to follow you? What does it mean to follow uh, Jesus? What does it mean to do your will on this earth? Lord, thank you for helping your people understand who Jesus truly is and was. And Lord, as we grapple with those same questions tonight, I pray that uh, you would again be revealing the reality of Jesus as the unique Son of God uh, as we look at Matthew 16 this evening. Amen. I'm wondering if in today's world of passwords and website security, you've had the frustrating experience of not being able to log into a website because you've forgotten your password or maybe because your password expired. Uh, but that's one of the ways that in, in our digital internet age, people have decided that we will be able to identify someone using a username and a password. Uh, maybe you've had that experience at work or at home. You've had to log in and sometimes we forget who we are. We forget, uh, well, we don't forget who we are, but we forget our passwords. And as a result, we can't prove who we are to the computer that's trying to identify us on the other end of our web browser. And when you can't prove who you are, you're unable to go into that website and listen to music or watch a movie or order a movie or whatever it is that the website uh, is designed to do. And I think that notion of identity and trying to validate our identity and trying to prove to someone or something that I really am the person that I claim to be is, is at the heart of Matthew chapter 16. It's also been at the heart of Matthew's gospel. Matthew's been uh, pressing in uh, on, our, on us as readers, trying to force us to grapple with uh, who is the person of Jesus. Is he who he claimed to be, and what are some of the proofs that we have of knowing that Jesus is, in fact, the person that he claimed? We've seen Matthew do that in the beginning of his gospel with prophecy. In the first few chapters, Matthew was looking backwards at the Old Testament and showing us how Jesus was the fulfillment of many Old Testament prophecies. We had other proofs of Jesus' person through his mighty teaching, whether it was the Sermon on the Mount or uh, some of the teaching through parables. We've, we've seen Jesus presented as a mighty, powerful teacher, unique, in uh, certainly in that day and age and probably in, in all uh, days and ages. And we've also seen Jesus' miraculous actions as another proof uh, that he is uh, truly the unique Son of God. As we come into Matthew chapter 16, we're going to see different groups of people grappling with this, uh, this reality. We're going to see the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We'll see them right away in the first part of the chapter. Uh, we're going to see the, the, the disciples as they grapple with who Jesus is, and we're also going to have a little bit of what the crowds uh, think about who Jesus is. And I think at the heart of it, is, is that people are wrestling with who Jesus is because if Jesus is who he claims to be, then there's a response that, that is going to be required of the crowds and the Pharisees and the, and the disciples themselves. And so uh, I think we're going to see tonight that Jesus has a unique identity 
and he also has a unique mission. And because of that, because of who Jesus is, and because of what he came to this earth to do, we as his followers uh, have a challenging uh, path that we are to walk in. So let's take a look and let's see uh, how the Pharisees responded to Jesus. We see that the Pharisees and Sadducees came to test him. And uh, this is right away in 16 verse 1. And they asked Jesus for a sign, a sign from heaven. And, you know, as we hear this, we might be saying to ourselves, like, look, you know, we've been looking at Jesus's life for the last 15 chapters here. He's done many miraculous things. Pick one of those. I mean, why wouldn't you just look at one of the things that he's already done, the feeding of the 4,000, the feeding of the 5,000, or the healings uh, that he's done? Uh, There's many things that we could look at. Uh, and I think as we as we look at the Pharisees' request, what we want to focus in on is that word test. Uh, this word that's used here is the same word that we saw back in Matthew 4 when Satan tested Jesus. If you remember that, Satan said to Jesus, if you really are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread, right? And he had two other temptations he offered beyond that. And so as we hear the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to Jesus to test him, what we want to hear is we want to hear them saying, if you really are the Son of God, give us a sign from heaven. Do something miraculous that will that will ultimately convince us that you are who you claim to be. They had heard Jesus' teaching, they had seen his miracles, they had, you know, understood that, you know, maybe some of this fulfillment of prophecy could point to Jesus, uh, but they were looking for something else beyond that. They they weren't willing to just accept the information they already had. They wanted some miraculous special sign. Jesus gives them a rebuke and, you know, he indicates that they're able to interpret the signs uh, that are available to them. They're able to use their eyes and their brains and their past experience to, to understand weather. And Jesus rebukes them for uh, not reading the signs of the times. And I, I was wondering exactly what this is. And I really think this is a point back to scripture. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were students of the Old Testament scriptures and they were failing to look at that material, at that source material, at the prophecies that were there, uh, and be able to understand how Jesus is fulfilling uh, that, that Old Testament prophecy as he goes about his life in the first century. Jesus says, the only sign that I'm going to give you is the sign of Jonah. Now, we know from Jonah 1.7 that Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And Jesus was going to experience roughly uh, the same time as uh, when after he'd be crucified, he would be in the ground, in the grave, for roughly the same time as Jonah was in the fish. As we go on, the scene changes a little bit, and the Jesus and the disciples are now uh, traveling by boat to the other side, and uh, they, they have this uh, humorous interaction with Jesus. Jesus says to them in verse 6, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And there's a humorous interchange uh, that the disciples have. Uh, they think that Jesus is talking about bread and their lack of it. Uh, Jesus realizes that they're confused, and he reminds them that, you know, he's not really talking about bread, but he doesn't drop the metaphor. He says again, uh, 
when I, you know, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, again in verse 11. So Jesus doesn't drop the metaphor, but the disciples do understand that he's actually talking about the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It's a good reminder for us that part of the problem with the Pharisees and the Sadducees wasn't that they were running around the countryside trying to challenge or test Jesus, but that their primary responsibility at that time was to shepherd and to care for the people of Israel. They were the biblical scholars. They were the ones who were leading the country in in a very real sense as the country seek to pursue the Lord. And so it would have been part of their responsibility to meet the physical needs of the people of Israel. Uh, You know, they wouldn't be able to maybe do the same things that we've seen Jesus do, miraculous healings, things along those lines. But but certainly there would have been mechanisms for them to care for the poor, to care for the needy, to care for the physical needs of the people of Israel, but also to care for the people of Israel's spiritual needs through teaching, through instruction, uh, and to pointing them back to the scriptures. And how are the Pharisees doing at this? How how well were they doing their job? I think Matthew 9.36 is a bit of a rebuke when Jesus uh, says he sees the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So the Pharisees were failing, not just because they were running around trying to catch Jesus in a lie or, or, or test him, but because their refusal to uh, acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God was an indication that their teaching and their care of the people of Israel was also not based upon Scripture. Uh, They were not doing their job as the leaders. They weren't teaching uh, accurately or correctly. They were teaching according to their tradition. They were teaching according to their self-interest. But they weren't teaching uh, and caring for the people in the way that God intended. I think the principle for this first section, looking at uh, verses 1 through 12, is that Jesus' identity demands a response. Jesus' identity demands a response. If you're driving down the road in your car and, and a police car comes up behind you with its lights on and its sirens flashing, you need to do something. You need to decide, hey, I'm, I need to pull over because this police officer wants me to stop. Or you have to say to yourself, you know, this guy back behind me, he's not really a police officer. It's a fake. Uh, It's a car that's disguised as a police officer car. And it's really someone that wants to do me some harm. And whatever decision you make in that, maybe there's a third option you could think of. But whatever choice you make, however you identify the police car that's behind you, there's consequences. Uh, There's consequences for the decision that you make about the police car, and there's consequences for the decisions that we make about Jesus' identity. I think it's important for us to evaluate who is it that we think Jesus is. Uh, Jesus identifies himself many times, indicating that he is the Son of God. Uh, He is identified that way by others. God himself, with a voice from heaven when Jesus is baptized, identifies Jesus uh, as the Son of God. But we have to decide for ourselves, do we believe it? 
Do we believe that Jesus is truly who he claims to be? Um, there, there's implications for us. Uh, there's implications uh, if we decide that, you know, hey, yeah, he really is the Son of God, and there's implications if we decide, you know, you know, I, no, I, you know he's lying. Uh, there's real implications for us as people for how we, de- how we answer that question. And so it's an important question for us to consider. And I think the other thing to point out is that it's okay to have doubts. Uh, I, I don't think that, you know, if we look at the, the lives of the disciples or the lives of people who were responding to Jesus, they didn't all immediately come to, come to their definitive conclusion. People had to wrestle with this, and we're going to see that as we look some more at this passage. But the reality is, is what are you doing with your doubts? You know, the Pharisees and Sadducees were, were taking their doubts, and they were trying to catch Jesus in a lie. They, they were trying to test him and evaluate him and, and uh, find ways to discredit him. Uh, other people were asking Jesus genuine questions. We don't see it so much in the book of Matthew, but Nicodemus had genuine questions in the, in the Gospel of John, and he wanted to ask Jesus, friends, Jesus can handle your doubts. Bring your doubts to him. If you have concerns, questions, if things don't make sense, uh, there are uh, certainly people in the, in the church world who'd be happy to have those conversations with you. None of them would be better than taking the concerns that you have to the Lord in prayer. Uh, seek him in prayer. See what he will say. See what information he will present to you. Take your doubts. Take your concerns. Take your unbelief to the Lord uh, and see what he will do with it. Well, not dissimilarly to the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, we see Jesus asking the disciples, well, who do the crowds, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And as the disciples respond, you know, we get a sense that the crowds don't have a clear idea either. Uh, the disciples respond to Jesus' question in verse 13, and they say, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And so again, the crowd is grappling with who is Jesus. Certainly, uh, there were some things about him that aligned him with, with people in the Old Testament that maybe the scriptures had, had talked about, but they weren't exactly sure who Jesus was. Uh, Jesus goes a step further with his disciples, and he wants to know specifically, what about the 12 of you? Who do you say that I am? And we see Peter responding as the spokesperson for the disciples in this situation at Caesarea Philippi, which is up in the north uh, of the land of Israel. Uh, Peter responds in verse 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And we're going we're gonna to see Jesus respond to him in verse 16. But I just wanted to think about Peter's response of Jesus as the Christ and then the Son of the living God. First of all, the notion of the Christ or the Messiah is something that uh, would have been talked about in, in great detail through the Old Testament scriptures. There was one that was promised who was going to come. Uh, that person was going to, you know, uh, fulfill uh, many things that were that that were that were covered in the Old Testament. And so, this notion of the Messiah, the promised one, uh, Peter is identifying Jesus as the one who has come in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. And then Peter goes on to say that you are the son of the living God. Uh, And this is something that I believe that it's certainly in the Old Testament as well. We can find places where, you know, the Messiah would refer to to God as Father. We can we can see some of that in the Old Testament. But certainly so far in the in the book of Matthew, we've seen regularly that Jesus has been referring to God as his heavenly father. Just two quick instances. There's there's about fifteen or sixteen 
13 times that that Matthew's going to do this in the in the in his gospel where God is referred to as the heavenly father but first of all when Jesus was baptized God speaks from heaven this is my son uh, with him I'm well pleased and then in the Lord's prayer when Jesus is teaching the disciples and the crowd to pray he says you know begin the prayer our father who art in heaven and so this notion this this father son relationship would have been something that that Peter would have been hearing regularly from Jesus and he's taken that teaching in and he believes it he believes what's been said about Jesus that Jesus is the fulfillment of the old testament prophecy and he also believes that Jesus is teaching Jesus's words, Jesus's claims of being God's son are in fact true. We see that Jesus goes on and speaks to Peter. Uh, Jesus reveals that he knows who Peter is. Not only does he know uh, that Peter is the son of Jonah, Simon Bar-Jonah, uh, but he knows that this knowledge that, that Peter has did not come from flesh and blood, but came from God himself. God was the one who told Peter or convinced Peter that Jesus is in fact uh, the Christ, the Son of God. Uh, Jesus goes on and he speaks some things that Peter is going to do. He, he indicates that uh, Peter um, is, he, he has his wordplay with rock, and he says, I will build my church uh, on this rock. I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loosed on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So he, he gives some specific uh, encouragement to Peter. And I think it's okay for us to, 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 to think about this and to realize that Peter is a special person in uh, the, in the kingdom, uh, certainly in the earthly kingdom as it goes forward. Uh, later on in verse 18, this, this, the key, this idea of binding and loosening, that's going to be extended to, to a, broad, a much broader audience. So that isn't that, that you know, Peter's going to uniquely be able to bind and loosen. Uh, many people are going to be given that direction in chapter 18. We'll see that in a few weeks. But certainly, uh, Peter played a key role in the establishment of the church. This word ecclesia, this, this word, uh, I will build my church. It's a gathering of people. Uh, Peter was the first person to preach after Pentecost in the book of Acts. He was the one that stood up and gave the first sermon where thousands of people came to believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Peter was also the first person to preach to the Gentiles. He went to Cornelius's home uh, and he spoke the, the words of the gospel there and Cornelius and his household came in to this church uh, family. We also see Peter speaking words of judgment to Ananias and Sapphira where, where they died in the Lord's presence. And so certainly Peter uh, is someone who is the leader of the early church. He was uh, one of the first people to begin to you know teach the word of the Lord in, in a public way. And so Peter certainly has a special place uh, within uh, the group of disciples and certainly within the church community. And, and again, this binding and loosing, uh, you know, I think the notion is, again, as, as we think of the binding, bringing people into the kingdom, uh, Pentecost, Cornelius, Peter definitely did that, loosening potentially what happened to Ananias and Sapphira uh, would have maybe be an example of loosening. Uh, but certainly Peter, uh, Peter with the keys uh, is going to be a special disciple, a special leader of the church, 
uh, that, that Jesus has established. And we're going to see other people that come along and have that same mandate, whether it's Paul, uh, whether it's other characters in the New Testament, in the book of Acts. Uh, there are people that, that played uh, special roles in the church, and Peter is certainly one of these. Jesus, having uh, established his identity as the Messiah, he begins to speak with the disciples about his mission. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and read verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day raised. So even though Peter had identified Jesus as the Christ, as the Son of God, Peter didn't understand everything, and neither did the rest of the disciples. Uh, Peter tries to take the Lord aside and rebuke him, saying, this is not going to happen to you, Lord. There's just no way. And we see a very strong rebuke that the Lord has for Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. Uh, and, and certainly, uh, even though Peter was was growing in his understanding, he did not have a complete understanding of what Jesus' mission was going to be as he went about doing the will of the Father. And the principle for the section, um, there's many things that we could point to. Certainly, Jesus is the Christ. He is uh, the Son of the living God. But Jesus came here with an express purpose. Uh, the reason that Jesus came as a man to be on earth wasn't just to hang out with these 12 guys, that was part of it, but, but his mission was ultimately to go to the cross, to, to complete this thing that he's telling the disciples that he must do. And, you know, sometimes when you and I go to the grocery store, we're just shopping, we're kind of browsing up and down the aisles, and we're thinking about what looks good. And other times when we go to the store, it's like, no, I, right now I need, I need to buy some milk or I have one very specific item. And if the person is like, oh, do you want a free sample of this thing? And you're like, no, I'm on a mission. I need to get some milk. And so I, I think Jesus's mission was, was focused to do the will of the Father. Uh, even though Peter might have wanted great things for the Lord, uh, Peter's heart desire was not necessarily lined up with the will of the Father. And so Jesus is, was solely focused, laser focused on doing the will of the Father, even though it would be at great personal cost to himself. I think an important question for us to consider as we think about Jesus's mission is what's the response that we're to have? Uh, what should we do as people who are, are, are followers of Jesus, who have been saved from our sins by Jesus, what's the right response to the Son of God dying on the cross to save sinners like you and like me? Uh, wh- what is it that we should do? How should we respond to that? Um, and, and has the fact that Jesus completed his mission of, of death on a cross and ultimately resurrection, has it made a difference to you? Uh, again, is it one of those things? Do you think it's real? Uh, do you think it's something that, that actually happened? Or do you have doubts? Do you have questions? Do you have concerns about whether or not uh, this event that's been, that we're leading up to in Matthew's gospel is a real thing that really happened? Uh, I think as we go on into this last section, Matthew 16, 24 to 28, the disciples' mission and ultimately our mission as Jesus' followers, uh, I think Jesus is helping people understand this is what it looks like to follow after me. Uh, this is what it looks like to to follow uh, serving the Lord in this world. Jesus establishes a pattern 
of what does it look like to serve God in this world. Our world is sinful, our world is broken, our world is fallen. We know that God's kingdom is coming, but what does it look like to serve God in this place? Jesus gives us a beautiful example of what that is. I don't know that I can uh, say it much better than he did, but Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. There's other things that Jesus says, uh, but certainly this notion of taking up your cross is, is, is what it looks like to follow Jesus. It might not have made much sense to the disciples at this point uh, in, their, in their experience with the Lord, but certainly I think as they reflected on this over time, they realized like, wow, there is a lot in that. So if we think about taking up your cross, uh, and we think about Jesus's words, uh, first of all, Uh, taking up your cross is not optional. As followers of Jesus, it is something that that we are called to do. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Carrying the cross is something that's personal. Uh, It's not something that I can do for you or that you can do for me. If there is work that, that God has called us to do, that work is is done in a personal way. Uh, Second of all, the work is voluntary. Jesus begins his statement with the word if, if anyone would come after me. Uh, No one is forced to do it. We are not obligated to carry our cross. But the other reality of the cross is that the cross is meant to kill. Uh, Jesus bore his cross to Mount Calvary, where he was ultimately going to give up his life uh, to forgive the sins of the world. The, the cross is mortal for us as well. It is meant to kill our selfish desires and our ambitions. But ultimately, the cross, carrying our cross, is the pathway to true victory. Jesus highlights that victory in verse 28. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This pathway that Jesus sets before his disciples is uh, certainly not easy, and I believe that that's the principle for this last section. The call to follow Jesus is not easy. If you go to the uh, the country of Israel, and if you go to the old city of Jerusalem, there's a road there or a pathway that you can walk, and it's called the Via Dolorosa. You can walk through the streets of the old city, and they've they've tried to map out, you know, maybe this is the path that Jesus would have walked on as he carried his cross. And there's 14 places that you can stop along the way. Uh, around Easter time in the old city, people will walk the Via Dolorosa with a wooden cross as they seek to emulate or replicate uh, the route that Jesus may have taken uh, as he walked to uh, Golgotha. Now, if you get a chance to do this, I would I would recommend it. Uh, it's an interesting experience, and it's certainly uh, one that can tie you back in. But, you know, I don't think that this is what Jesus was referring to when he said, take up your cross and follow me. Uh, there's there's things that we are called to do uh, as we go through the process of self-denial, uh, as we go through the process of attempting to give up our selfish desires and our own ambitions to do the will of the Father that are not going to be identical to the things that Jesus did. We aren't going to you know walk the Via Dolorosa and, and die for someone else's sins, uh, but the things that, that God has given us to do are going to be things that uh, we will need to follow the same pattern of self-sacrifice and self-denial that Jesus did. 
I think it's a fair question for us to consider is, you know, how's it been going? If you're a follower of Jesus, how has your cross carrying been going? Um, it's difficult, and I think it's a challenge, and I think it's something that we're probably not very good at, and I know that that's personally true for me. Um, I often want to stop. I want to set down my cross. I want to give up. Uh, I want to despair. Um, I want my life to be easier. And and uh, I, I think it's been a hard road for me, and I'm sure that many of you who are attempting to do this feel the same way. You know, what are some of the things that have come up in your own journey that have resulted in you wanting to stop? Uh, there's opposition. There's people that will mock us for the decisions that we make or the way that we choose to live our lives. And I think one of the things that I can do is I can get focused on uh, really just my short-term, near-term situation, like, wow, this is really hard, or this situation that I'm in really sucks. Uh, and, and Jesus is reminding his disciples to look up and realize that the thing that we're striving for is something that, that is down the road, that is, that is further ahead, um, that we want, to, we want to be motivated by the fact that we will see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, and that is something that we can focus on as we're seeking to follow after Jesus. Well, uh, I think that the the great news for us is that we aren't going to carry our crosses perfectly. Uh, Jesus carried his perfectly. Uh, He is the unique God-man. He is the unique Son of God. And uh, because Jesus accomplished his mission perfectly, you and I can find forgiveness when we fail to carry out the mission that God maybe has given us as well. Uh, and I think one good reminder for all of us as we wrap up tonight is that, you know, we are not trying to earn our way into God's kingdom by the way that we carry our crosses, but we're trying to live our lives uh, in response and in submission to uh, the pattern that Jesus has established. Uh, let's pray and ask that God would help us to do that. Lord, uh, I do pray that as we seek to follow after you, that you would help us to follow the pattern that you've established. Lord, self-denial, self-sacrifice are not things that are popular uh, in our hearts and certainly not in the day and age that we live in. Lord, as we seek to follow after you, I pray that you would help us. Help us to see the reward of your coming kingdom. Uh, Lord, help us to see the reward of... uh, of a, of a well-done, good and faithful servant. Uh, Lord, help us to uh, continue moving um, and continue doing the work that you've called us to do, not because we're trying to perfect ourselves, uh, but because we're trying to respond well uh, to the work that you've already accomplished. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Have a good week.